All right, bitches. Here we go. Welcome to the next exciting episode of the New Albion Radio Hour. Dear listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of the New Albion Radio Hour. We need to get an orchestra hooked up to this. Uh, make a note of that. Anyway, welcome. You might hear some construction going on. We're making your New Albion Radio Hour even bigger and better. Yes, we have lots of exciting things in store for you. <laughs> yes, lots of exciting things in store. Anyway... Lots of new listeners. Our ratings are going up and up. Yes, yes, just keep listening. Such wonderful treats we have in store. And because we have so many young, hip cats listening, do they use that term yet? What slang are they into these days? Oh, yes, wait, I heard one the other day. Okay, so, welcome to all you WAPs tuning in. I love to see so many hip WAPs listening to the show. Why? Why are you laughing? This is a perfectly hip term. I even cornered a youth and demanded... I mean, I, I asked a helpful young person. Okay, let's say I asked with intensity if WAP meant wily, articulate person, and they confirmed that it indeed did. Why, I'm a WAP. We can all hang out and be WAPs together. What do you mean I've never seen a WAP in my life? My life is full of WAPs! Well, it was. I mean, I pride myself on the company I keep. Or used to in any case. And I prefer WAPs to anything else. Old or young, it makes no difference to me. Although, there is much to be said for older WAPs. Wizened with the vintage of age and experience. There's a WAP you want to have dinner with. But, what's gotten into you? You're in a giggly mood today. <laughs> Look at your walls shake. Anyway, this is for all the young WAPs out there. This is a new segment called Advice for Young People, where I, your host Lloyd Allen, offer inspirational advice to all the youngsters out there. Kids, take it from me. Don't be afraid to dream big. Yes. Big dreams will be a great blessing to you in your lives. So dream big. It's not that, I mean, it's not that you'll necessarily achieve them. I mean, to be honest, you, your lives are probably going to be an endless string of bland mediocrity and disappointment. But dreaming big as a youngster will fill you with hope. Hope so that you won't notice or care so much as a million little daggers of humiliation and defeat just grind you down over the years so that by the time you're old and weary and have finally resigned yourself to no longer caring about the failure of your foolish aspirations, tiresomely accepting your fate of quiet desperation, you can look back upon the dreams of your youth with joy and cheerful nostalgia. 
Those dreams will be a comfort to you. The long-gone hope, an opium in your meaningless march towards non-existence. Such a beautiful, precious thing. So kids, don't forget to dream big. Reach for the stars. And of course, it would be remiss of me to fail to urge you to pay attention to your teachers. Yes, pay attention to your elders, children. It is important to keep in mind that everybody, whether consciously or subconsciously, everybody will reveal their weaknesses sooner or later, and the attentive observer will be able to perceive and catalog these weaknesses so that when the time is right, you can use them to your advantage. But Lloyd, you say, you are teaching us right now. Are you suggesting we do this very thing to you? Now, kids... I assure you, the day I can be brought down by a bunch of flailing, simpering, wretched whelps barely out of puberty, I will deserve it, and have full faith in my abilities to take any and all comers down with me. Your average teacher is not nearly as competent, so you'll stand a much better chance with them. Good luck. Remember, as depressing as the thought is, you are the future. God help us all. Today's exciting episode is brought to you by Petunias Pedicures, where you can get the finest pedicures in all of New Albion. Why any sane person would want to deal with people's gross and putrid feet all day escapes me. Unless you're one of those kinky weirdos who gets off on such depravity. What? Kink-shaming? Why, yes, I'm kink-shaming. Of course you should be ashamed. I don't see why it's unbecoming. Most people should be ashamed for existing. Their, their stupid kinks are the least of their idiocies. And I'd have you know, I have never caused grievous bodily injury to anybody for their disgusting sexual kinks. I have an encyclopedia of other faux pas and rudenesses. You are absolutely free to pursue your disgusting kinks, such as foot worship and heterosexuality and the privacy of your sad and debased bedroom, but I don't need to see it. However, while giving a foot massage to a stranger, unless they're robust and muscular, is questionable. Receiving a nice foot massage, on the other hand, is, is quite wonderful, and if I were able to and not imprisoned in this hellish cage of a joke of existence, I would love a good foot massage. And thus, I would head out to Petunia's Pedicures, where foot rubs and toenail painting, whatever other debauched activities one does with human feet, die a sumer on the menu. Petunia's Pedicures, let her shameful kink be your advantage. And now, without further ado... The Origin of the August Sky Playhouse, Part 1 The Decadent Abbey is the stuff of legend, but it's not the only place which is a linchpin. There are a number of these. A place which is a linchpin basically means that it exists in numerous narratives simultaneously. It can be used to cross narratives by people who can't otherwise travel from world to world, or as a meeting place for denizens of different strands. 
It seems confusing, but it is important to remember the metaverse has seven levels to it, and linchpins work on a sixth level logic, while also following second and third level rules. As an aside, there is a legend that says anyone who can travel all seven levels will become a god, and some surmise that William is even at this very moment attempting to do just this. The Abbey is particularly powerful, which is why it is used despite its drawbacks. Its drawbacks include slowly driving anyone who spends too much time there insane and not being able to return from it once you go. It has, nevertheless, been used as a base of operations, one of many, by the Holy Order of the Bleeding Rose, an order of acolytes dedicated to the exploration and understanding of the metaverse and the mysteries within it. The Holy Order of the Bleeding Rose often masks itself as a religious order, and in some ways it is, but not necessarily in the way religious order is usually conceived. Many years from when our current story takes place, it will be used as an outpost, a prison guard station for a pocket dimension used to imprison a very powerful and very malevolent entity. But this is still quite a ways away. The director of the Abbey at the time of our story is a 50-year-old Sufi named Yashva, who has been running the place for 15 years. She was holding up quite well, despite numbers of ticks and a stutter. She still had close to another ten years before her mind finally broke to the point where she could no longer perform her duties. She was drinking her daily afternoon tea, a strong black tea that most of the others couldn't stand, but which she loved, when she got the news that three people had just entered. She turned to the young boy beside her and smiled, nodding as if impressed with something he had told her which indeed she was. The quest for the decadent abbey was a long and complicated affair. Asha's knowledge was, after all, all second-hand and very limited. She had no idea where to start. She, Jill, and Michael couldn't all quite fit on the dragon, so they had to fly out of the great watchtower with Michael hanging from the dragon's tail. The dragon, in turn, couldn't fly well with the extra unbalanced weight, and so weaved about space outside the tower like a drunken bumblebee. They also had literally no idea where to go, so they just picked a strand and jumped off the dragon on top of it. They stood there wondering how to get in. Jill tried just sticking her head in, which worked, sort of, although at one point she was halfway in with her butt sticking out, stuck and unable to crawl in further. Michael pushed her in and then dove in after like a diver. Asha hugged the dragon, asked for it to wait for them, then dove in after them. They reappeared about a kilometer down the strand ten minutes later. But in fact, three days had passed inside the strand. They would soon devise a whistle method, whereby upon exiting a narrative strand, they would use a mystical whistle devised by Jill, and the dragon would appear within a number of hours. They hadn't accomplished much but they did pick up a fantasy novel that had an Order of the Bleeding Rose mentioned, which had a monastery in it and mention of an abbey. The three of them jumped in and out of strands, chasing any leads they could find on this mysterious order or the abbey. They encountered a lot of the same problems William and his group did. They had no money, no supplies, inappropriate clothing, and no idea how each world functioned. 
Jill wanted to use magic to help them, but she needed ingredients to make spells, and most of the time needed to create new spells from scratch. New spells can be interesting and convenient, but creating them is actually quite difficult and involves enormous trial and error, along with odd ingredients. She would often claim to need some kind of intoxicant to help inspire her, which Michael and Asha concluded was mildly true, but mostly she wanted to party a bit while they world-hopped. Asha's favorite thing in the world was to make lists. This also helped reduce her anxiety and keep her centered. It was very beneficial for the group and Jill's spell experiments, as Asha was the only one of them really capable of being organized. Nothing pleased her like making a list and clicking off the items. Granted, if she got to a point in the list where she got stuck, she got extremely agitated and sometimes would even start shouting or fidgeting obsessively, but all in all, she kept the group focused. The tactic the three of them used to make their way through odd and unfamiliar narratives was to essentially become a con artist gang. It started as mostly comedic bumbling, with lots of running away, but eventually they became incredibly proficient. What they didn't understand yet, and wouldn't for a while, was the more they saw themselves as a crack group of skilled con artists, the more they fundamentally became one, and the more each world bent to treat them as such. Jill, of course, had an improvisational approach to everything and would just spontaneously adopt rather over-the-top characters. Asha turned out to be a rather skilled actor, but had to write out incredibly overcomplicated backstories to her characters before attempting to act them. She would also write out step-by-step -step methods for their exploits, which were usually for very simple things like bits of money, food, or supplies. Jill never stuck to these lists, and it would have caused tension, except for Michael's nonchalance, game-like approach to it, and the fact that they were also having an incredibly good time, and the comedy that resulted from Jill and Asha's yin and yang was hysterical to all of them. Michael, it turned out, was a smooth talker extraordinaire. He could talk the tire off a moving carriage. He had a drawl and easy manner that made him the perfect point man for their shenanigans. No matter what chaos Jill would create, he would saunter in and smooth it all out. It should be noted that the group did not in any way attempt to enrich themselves. They never took more than they needed, never walked off with something that would cause serious distress to anyone undeserving of distress, and really were only attempting to survive and collect a few spell ingredients or information. The spell ingredients could be utterly bizarre things that half the time wouldn't work out anyway, and the more colorful cons were usually attempting to acquire these things. The other types of cons, which made for strange and fun antics, were to obtain information. The time Jill and Asha joined a nunnery was especially colorful, or the time they had to infiltrate an Egyptian royal court to gain access to the disformed younger genius sister of the queen who knew of supposed secret gateways between the worlds, or the time Asha had to infiltrate an order of ninjas while an invisible Jill followed her and used magic to pull off the mysterious skills Asha claimed to possess, which she didn't and the ninjas had never heard of. Michael posed as her ancient wizened sensei, 
and the entire thing ended with the three of them running frantically while chased by the entire order of deadly ninjas, all because Jill needed ingredients for what turned out was a spell to make farts become a giant flaming demon that screamed fiery rage for 30 seconds because, as she put it, what's the point of magic if you can't make someone's fart into a fiery screaming demon? Surprisingly, this spell turned out to be enormously useful in a number of narratives, and Asha quite loved to throw this into her step-by-step plans. Step 23. Initiate Flaming Fart Demon. Or the time Michael ended up married to the daughter of a mafia don, and they all had to pretend to be colorful, larger-than-life personalities who were engaged in all sorts of seedy business arrangements, which were, of course, all fabricated on the fly by Jill, but which they eventually had to make look real. Asha eventually wrote a book series about all of their exploits during this period that became bestsellers in a particular narrative, and if you can ever track these down, they make for delightful reading, as Asha is a quite wonderful writer. Eventually, this all led them to a giant ziggurat in a great Sumerian city. Inside the innermost sanctum of the ziggurat was where the god of the city presumably presided. Usually this was all wishful thinking by the priests and citizens, and all that was inside was a giant statue where the god's spirit was thought to rest. But in this case, the group had good reason to believe there really was something that lived in there and guarded some kind of gate that might actually lead directly to the decadent abbey itself. No one, not even the high priests, were allowed inside this inner sanctum. But since high priests could at least get close, the gang had to infiltrate the priesthood, disguise themselves as priests, and know enough to get into the most holy part of the temple. This was a whole affair that began with them in a fruit merchant stall dressed as Ethiopian palace guards from another narrative, and over the course of three weeks, ended with them finally ducking out of a line of chanting priests parading by the entrance to the holiest of holy inner sanctums where the god lived. They made their way through the great brick corridors until they came to a great room in which was a cauldron, an altar in which something was still burning that smelled remarkably like hashish, scores of discarded barrels, huge piles of chewed animal bones, and a giant warthog-looking thing with a massive axe that was reading a clay tablet like the morning paper. Oh, what? it said as they walked in. What do we have here? Okay, step 57, said Asha. Initiate conversation with Temple God, she turned to Michael. That's you. Yeah, yeah, said Michael. I got it. Well... Howdy there, Mr. Uh, Warthog, sir. We are well-meaning travelers. That's General Warthog, sir, to you grunts. General Barlissius Mucklepuck, winner of the Bordish Axe and guardian of the Three Gates. Guard them against nasty, unruly sorts that aren't supposed to be mucking about in the universe. That's not you lot, is it? Mmm, you are sexy for a Warthog. I've never done it with a sexy warthog, said Jill. I'm, um, stammered the general. Michael nodded appreciatively at Jill's tactic. Yes, said Asha. I bet you have a great backstory. She pulled out a pen and notebook. If you don't mind, 
I'm going to write a book one day. Oh, well, of course not, said the general. It's obvious you bunch of sneaky over-flatterers aren't actually malicious and does get boring in here. You want some mead? He pulled out a goblet the size of their head and filled it using a half-empty barrel. Part of my daily sacrifice I demand from my vassals out there is two barrels of mead and a brick of hash. He pulled out a dark brick larger than Michael's foot. Want some? The gang politely accepted a small cup of mead, except for Jill, who admitted she wouldn't mind sampling the hash. The general was from a race of warthogs who were all engaged in a great tournament to determine who was the mightiest. Eventually, they managed to all kill themselves off, except the general, who, by being the very last to survive, won the title of general, the golden axe he now carried, and the prestige of winning. He was also the last of his species, and no one had ever come up with a plan as to what the winner should do once victorious. So, he had spent his time fighting in a long list of wars and skirmishes throughout the metaverse. One particularly noble victory he was most proud of was stopping the famed conqueror Jordan Rathcar. Jordan Rathcar was the leader of a tribe of warrior nomads who had heard rumors of a fountain of immortality. He had become obsessed with finding and controlling it, and in his quest destroyed numerous worlds and millions of souls. He never did find the fountain and never did achieve the immortality he so desired. General Mucklepuck and the Band of Seven were the ones who eventually snuck through the hordes, raided the citadel, and slayed Jordan. An old witch had told the general that Jordan would go on to a series of troublesome reincarnations, beginning as a child named Jan and include a card player named Jesse, and that none of his reincarnations would ever threaten the worlds again. Now old and tired, the general resided in the ziggurat, and guarded a series of gateways contained inside. Well, this one leads to sub-level four. Confusing place if you're not used to it. Uh, this one leads to the Bitlands, like, like Lollyland. Weird place. Well, I don't think you want to go to Lollyland. Good pastries, though. Got a pretty goth, dark marshmallow princess uh, I had a bit of a thing with. <laughs> Rawr. He smiled mischievously. Then there's that one leads to the Deccanon Abbey. The gang ended up staying for hours, listening to the general's stories and telling him their own. He was particularly troubled over their tales of the gnomes and pledged his aid to rid the worlds of them. They assured him they would need his skill and knowledge and promised one day they would return to collect him so that he could fight in one last glorious battle. The general was delighted and even misty-eyed. He was old, bored, and what he now feared most was dying in his sleep. He longed for a death in battle, and the gang told him they'd do what they could. They all hugged, especially Jill, who was by now six shades to the wind, and she assured the general she wasn't kidding about riding a warthog. Finally, General Barlissius Mucklepuck opened the third door, and Asha, Jill, and Michael stepped through into the decadent abbey. And now it's time in the podcast for you woke waps to wiggle. 
to the wonderful, wacky melodies of whoever this is playing whatever they're playing. And the band played on as the helicopters whirred Drunk on the lawn in a nuclear dawn my sense is finely blurred. He was a rock. To the end, a solid reminder. Couldn't deny a friend. We lived in the noise and the sweet amber poison. Peeking up the skirt of the end. And we drink. Two gnarly dudes and some records Much like plates of black food We filled up our faces Saw some far places Stood on the roof in the nude And the band played on As the helicopters whirred Drunk on the lawn in a nuclear dawn My sense is finely blurred Between poles You said we're like cows in the grass Brushing off flies Chase lounging around Standing up, falling down Till we no longer opened our eyes And we drink Ever notice how drinking's like war? Cup of troops or the gums To the end of our health A campaign against myself Armed with bourbons ah. and scotches and rums The band played on as the helicopters whirred. Drunk on the lawn in a nuclear dawn, my sense is finely blurred. Think of bombs. We're poised on the edge of disaster. Whether it's right or it's wrong We open the window Played some Nintendo Sang a few bars of some pretty old song Irene, good night Irene, good night Good night, Irene Good night, Irene. I'll see you in my dreams. Oh, to dream. Those impotent bombs of extinction flying graceful and free. None but the best, cause the man cannot rest till he's finally beaten his me. And the band played on As the 
helicopter's word Drunk on the lawn in a nuclear dawn My senses finally blurred Till the end He passed out on the sun deck that morning Quietly saying goodbye But I was so hammered I sputtered and stammered Told him he couldn't just die He was a rock Went straight for his own Armageddon Face frozen a grin Ambulance flying in I never drank again Can't really call that a loss or a win And the band played on As the helicopters whirred Drunk on the lawn in a nuclear dawn my senses finally blur